may be seated. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Before we go on this evening, we're going to back up just a little bit and talk about some things that we discussed in the first two messages. Uh, we've had a little bit of a break from, from that, so we're going to go back and look at just a few things that we've talked about to get us up to the point where we want to uh, discuss something new tonight. The first thing that we talked about uh, as we began this particular message was Satan's origin. Where did Satan come from? Well, we know from reading the scriptures that he was created as one of the holy angels of God. And you need to take note of that statement. I mean, understand that he is a created being. And so that means that Satan does not possess the same attributes as God. He is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent as God is. But he was created in holiness And God created him with the ability that he could either choose to follow God or to rebel against God's authority. Well, as we know from reading Scripture, uh, Satan decided to do the latter. The Bible tells us that he was lifted up with pride. He thought that he deserved to be as God is, and so he rebelled against God. And in his rebellion, he may have caused the fall of at least one-third of all the angels that were in heaven. Now, those angels are now known as demons, and they are what you might call Satan's battle group today. And they're the ones that we are fighting so strenuously against, constantly fighting the devil and these demons. The next thing we talked about was Satan's descriptions. And actually, there's more said about Satan in the Bible than any other uh, being than God himself. He's prominent in Scripture and prominent in the world Because every act of evil that takes place in the world has Satan as its root cause. The Bible gives him many different names and descriptions. He's called the devil, and that is a term that means the traducer. It means uh, a slanderer. And although in the King James Bible we often uh, see the word devils used, uh, that's actually demons, and strictly speaking, there is only one devil, even though there are millions of demons. He's also called a prince and a god. Now, the Bible does not refer to him as the god, but it does refer to him as a god. And the reason why is because the power of the devil is so far above and beyond anything that man knows that he appears as a god to us. And he's called the ruler of this world. And that's because he usurps God's authority in this world. At the present time, the world is Satan's domain. He usurps God's authority. And so he is called the ruler of this world. He's called a deceiver. And he gains ground by presenting himself by by things other than what he really is. The Bible says that he appears as a beautiful creature, as an angel of light. But actually in him is the blackness of hell. He... uh, deceives people and lies with reckless abandon and the awful state of the world that we find ourselves in today where where men will turn their backs on righteousness and turn their backs on the thing that is eternally good for them that's a testimony of the devil's powers of deception the bible calls him a tempter and he knows enough about human nature that he knows exactly when and where and how to tempt you to get you to do what he wants you to do The Bible calls him a murderer, and that's because through his activities, he murdered the human race. So death and destruction are always in the wake of the devil. Then thirdly, we discuss Satan's personality. He's a real person, uh, and he is very content for you to think that he's not real at all. 
He prefers for you to think that, well, he, he, is, uh, just, uh, he isn't real, but evil is just a concept. He doesn't want you to think that evil is personified. Because if he's not real, then you won't fear him. You won't think about him. But he is real. The Bible teaches that he possesses a personality. He is intelligent. Uh, perhaps, I think with no doubt, he is the most intelligent of all of God's creation. He's emotional. He has desires. His desire chiefly is to defeat God and anything uh, that God holds precious. He's full of wrath. And actually, the wrath that he has discolors his own reason so that he doesn't even understand what's going to happen to him. He's an organizer. He organized a heavenly rebellion. And right now, he is organizing an earthly rebellion. And the last act of freedom that the devil will enjoy is when he tries to gather an army to fight against God But before he's ever able to do that, in the end, that army will be defeated before it ever gets a chance to fight. And then God will cast Satan into the lake of fire. So that's the enemy that we faced. We've learned a lot about him in these past two lessons. But this evening, we're going to take this thing just a little bit further. In verse number 11, Paul said, Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We want to concentrate on the wiles of the devil. And we're going to speak fourthly tonight about Satan's activities. And in the next three weeks, we're going to be discussing the resume of our allies. We're going to talk about the elect angels of God and how those angels help us. And I'm going to come back to this subject once again of the wiles of the devil. We'll probably have two more messages about this. But we're going to just briefly get into this tonight as we talk about the wiles of the devil. And that's a word that actually means tricks. And uh, the whole of the devil's activity can be summed up in the one word trickery. The devil wants you to think that he's something that he's not. Now, we've studied before that uh, the, the, the Satan's real work is not so much to convince you that there is no God. He, he's not really trying to convince people there is no God. I mean, we uh, find that there are a few atheists in the world, and of course, they have been deceived by Satan. But atheism has never been a serious threat to God. I mean, that, that's not really where people go with this thing. I think it's interesting that even the devil thinks that atheists are stupid. I mean, he doesn't really try to make legions of atheists because he knows that they're, they're just too dumb to be helpful. Even the most ignorant native in the jungles of Borneo knows that there's a God. He knows more than an educated atheist. So Satan does his best work, not when he's trying to stamp out the name of God and say there is no God and create atheists, but Satan does his best work when he tries to counterfeit God. And so Satan's work is one of imitation. He doesn't want you to be an atheist. He wants you to believe in a false god. Well, why does Satan do that? I mean, why, uh, why wouldn't it be better for Satan to try to convince everybody there simply is no god? Well, the chief reason I think that he doesn't is because that is simply too hard for him. And the reason it's too hard is because man has it built into his nature to believe that there's a god. Paul describes that in Romans. He says in Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." 
And so man by his nature understands that there is a God. He sees the evidence. Then Paul also tells us that it is innate in man to, to believe uh, or have a sense of right and wrong. And he states this in Romans chapter 2. He says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. So it's too hard for Satan to make atheists because in order to do that, a person has to deny his own nature. He has to deny the obvious existence of the Creator. All of the evidence is out there. It's seen throughout the entire universe. And so atheists are too dumb to be used by Satan. Very simply, they're not credible. They've never been credible, and most people will not believe in atheism. If you look at the Soviet Union, for instance, they avowed atheism. All those years, they avowed atheism. Communism avows atheism. But did atheism ever gain or take hold of those countries and overpower the, the, uh, uh, the religion there or Christianity? It never did. And still there today, there are many believers that are in those former communist countries. So Satan does his best work or the worst work, depending upon the angle that you're looking at it, when he counterfeits and imitates God. So Satan wants you to be religious. That's your natural inclination. But the thing that he knows about man is that man can be satisfied with any religion. So how does Satan imitate God? How does he go about doing this work? Well, first of all, he has a trinity. We're used to thinking of God as a trinity. And we think of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But Satan also has a false trinity that one day he's going to unveil to the world. And in this trinity, Satan assumes the role of the Father. I mean, he's the one who will be the director. But there's a person who is also coming who will appear on the world scene. He'll be uh, led by Satan and he will take the role of the Son of God. Now, interestingly enough, he's also called a Christ, but in this case, he's called the Antichrist. What was it that Christ claimed when he came into the world? He claimed to be equal with the Father. He claimed to be God. And when the Antichrist comes, he'll claim the same. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition." who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's the Antichrist, the second person of Satan's, uh, Satan's unholy trinity. And then Satan also has a counterpart to the Holy Spirit. And this person is called the false prophet. When the Antichrist comes, he, he'll set up this... this uh, False prophet, he'll be uh, endued with power, he'll be a religious czar, and he's going to consolidate all the religions of the world. All of this happens during the tribulation period, and that is Satan's attempt to imitate God with a false trinity. Then also, in his imitation of God, Satan has houses of worship. Well, in the New Testament, we have the New Testament church, and of course, uh, God is worshipped in true New Testament churches. But Satan also has houses of worship. And I'm not mainly referring to here uh, devil worship or people who overtly worship Satan. I remember a few years ago when we were back in Kentucky and we were moving our church from one location to another, uh, not too far from us was a Satan-worshipping church. 
Well, that's not normal. You don't see too many of those things. And, and I think that even Satan looks at Satan worshipers as freaks. I mean, that's just not normal. So, so Satan is not trying to make open converts to Satanism. What he really tries to do is to work through established religions. So I could talk to you tonight about Islam and about Buddhism, Confucianism and Taoism and, and all the other isms that are out there in the world. We could talk about those and, and certainly Satan is at work in all of those, those false religions. But when we talk about the New Testament, what the Bible warns against there is a perversion of Christianity. What Satan tries to do is to make people think that they're Christians when they're not actually Christians. Christianity espouses the highest goals of human behavior. Uh, Christianity speaks of peace and contentment and, and a personal relationship with God. It talks about better relationships with other people. It, it promises freedom. And you always find out that, that countries that are Christianized are ones that have free societies. And ones like communism and, and uh, the Muslim countries where there is no Christianity, those are repressive societies. And Satan knows all of this. Christianity prospers wherever it takes hold. Satan knows all of that. And so what he tries to do is to pervert Christianity. And so what he does is promote a false Christianity. Now, when I speak of, of houses of worship, I know that you know, some of you may think that I'm far too narrow. And you may think that I'm not charitable enough. But as I see it, there are true New Testament churches... And Christ only organized one true New Testament church. There is one true church. And we have this plethora of churches out there that, that don't all teach the same doctrines. And all of them can't be right. So we can't say that all of them are true churches. Now here at Berean Baptist, of course, we are a Baptist church. Uh, we're defined by, by Baptist interpretations of Scripture. And as you know, uh, we here at Berean, we hold the doctrines that were held in common uh, by Baptists for centuries, and we don't accept the perversions of Baptist doctrine that have come over from other denominations uh, in the last hundred years or so. I was debating this issue or speaking to another pastor about this not long ago. He was a fundamental pastor, and I asked him to, to point out or to name any prominent Baptist who hold the current popular views of salvation that Baptists hold today from past centuries, and he couldn't name even one that held to, those, to, those, uh, to these uh, modern views. But I believe that the church that Jesus started was a church of like faith and order to churches just like Berean Baptist Church. And so when Jesus founded the church in the first century, uh, he had the certain doctrines that he set down. We find them in the Word of God, and there is a proper interpretation of those doctrines. And so what Satan has done in all the ensuing years, he's produced all kinds of confusion about Christianity. And so today, you have multiplicity of denominations, and all of them claim to be the true church. But it's impossible to have so many people teaching different things about salvation, teaching different things about the doctrines of God's Word, who don't, many of them don't even understand what salvation is all about, and then to call them true New Testament churches. That's an impossibility. And so what they are are false churches that counterfeit true Christianity. Well, the question is, are, are there saved people in these churches? I believe that there are. But I believe that they got saved just like I got saved. And they got saved just like you got saved. So even in false churches, there are some saved people. And where Satan cannot prevent salvation, he works to destroy the influence of those Christians. 
And so you have uh, many of these false churches that are weak in their doctrine. They never produce a good, solid, sound Christian person. But aside from those that are, that are saved in those denominations, there are also many people who aren't saved. And they think that they're Christians. Satan has houses of worship that are so far off base that there's no semblance of truth in them. And so you have groups like the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. They claim to be Christians and, and they want to be accepted on the same level of Christianity as all the rest of, of Christians. And people are duped into this. I mean, people in other denominations, they're duped into thinking that Mormonism is just a slight variation of the very same things that we believe. It's not, folks. It's the synagogue of Satan. I think that's how the Bible describes it. But it's not just Mormonism. You see, you could have the name Baptist on the door. I mean, and if you deny the blood of Jesus Christ, if you deny the inspiration of Scripture, if you deny the virgin birth, among other doctrines then that is a church that is a synagogue of Satan. Now, it's interesting when Jesus was speaking to the churches of Asia that he said to the church of Smyrna, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And it's interesting that Jesus used the word synagogue, synagogue of Satan. And that shows us that Even Satan has his false religions. He imitates God by setting up houses of worship that counterfeit the true church. Well, if he has false churches, then he also has his ministers. That's another thing in which he imitates Christianity. Now, of course, the false churches would have false prophets. Donald, Donald Gray Barnhouse once said, When you get ready to look for the devil, don't forget to check behind the pulpit. And we have... Various, very clear warnings in Scripture about false prophets. Uh, Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works." See, if you think that a person who gets up in a pulpit and opens the Bible, and even if it's a King James Bible like we use here, and automatically that means they must be speaking the truth. I mean, they're using the Bible. If you think that, you've been fooled. Because they're not. The devil is a master manipulator of Scripture. And if you remember, it was Scripture that he used to try and trip up Jesus and try to tempt him. And before the first century was even over, I mean, there were various uh, false prophets that were literally coming out of the woodwork trying to destroy true Christianity. Jude had a very interesting way of putting that. If if you want to read the first chapter of Jude, we studied that a few years ago. But you remember in that first chapter, well, there's only one chapter there. But he said that these false teachers and these false prophets are creeping in. And whenever I think about that phrase that he used, creeping in... It always makes me feel that there are a lot of religious creeps. Now, I'm going to warn you about something. You're not going to like what I'm going to say next. Some of you may not like this. And uh, I have never been afraid to name names. And I do that because I think that a person cannot be sufficiently warned if you don't name some names sometimes. Paul used names in the Scripture when he's trying to tell who the false prophets were. So I'm going to give you some opinions tonight just on a two or three people here. I think that Joel Osteen is a religious creep. My flesh crawls 
Every time I hear uh, Satan coming from such a sweet package as Joel Osteen. And you know, I even hear Baptists that, that, that defend him and they watch him. If, if you saw him in his interview with Larry King some time ago, I mean, if a reprobate like Larry King can trip up Joel Osteen, that tells you how much he knows about the Bible. But you know, when Joel Osteen was asked about whether Jesus is the only way of salvation and whether you need to trust in Jesus alone and he's the only way that you can get to heaven, and when he was asked about sin and why he doesn't talk about sin, you know that Joel Osteen didn't have an answer. And instead what he did, he got that big Cheshire grin, cat grin, Cheshire cat grin that he has, and he, and he got a tear in his eye, and he started talking about all the people that he'd helped. Yes, folks, he's helped a whole lot of people, helped them right down the path of hell because he doesn't teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that Benny Hinn is a creep. He's a religious fake, a charlatan. And every time he opens his mouth, he might as well have his arm draped around the devil at the same time. I think that Joyce Meyer is a religious creep. She's a woman preacher, so enough said right there. So if Satan's ministers aren't out there, folks, if they're not out there, if they really don't exist, then Jesus would not have said this, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. So Satan has his churches, he has his ministers, but then also he has his doctrines. He's imitating God, so he has his doctrines. And uh, if there's a doctrine in the Word of God, then you can rest assured that somehow Satan has perverted that. Somehow, some way, if it's in the Word of God, Satan has perverted it. But here's the real sneaky thing about Satan. That is, uh, uh, he doesn't have one false church that preaches all false doctrine, and he doesn't have one false preacher who preaches all the wrong things all of the time. No, what Satan does, he likes to mix and match And he likes to have enough truth in what he says that he can hook unsuspecting people. Take Catholicism, for instance. There's just enough truth in Catholicism that it hooks people. The Roman Catholic Church has has made some of the strongest statements throughout history on the doctrine of the Trinity. And many times when you want to go back to make proofs of the Trinity, you can go right back to Roman Catholic doctrines. You can find them standing strong on the doctrine of the Trinity. On On the virgin birth. The Roman Catholic is very strong on the virgin birth. But you'll notice what's happened to them, that they have made all kinds of perversions surrounding the doctrine of the Trinity. And they teach the virgin birth, but they destroyed the virgin in the process as they did it. So there's just enough truth to hook people. So in each of these false churches, there's smidgens of truth. The Mormons, for instance, they got this right. They got baptism by immersion right. But then what did they do? They start baptizing by proxy people that are dead. And they're busy, as I told you before, right now in, uh, in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, they're baptizing thousands, 24 hours a day, baptizing people that, that, are, that are dead, baptizing by proxy for those that are dead. So the devil has his doctrines. They're wide and they're varied. But the main thing that Satan likes to tinker with is the doctrine of salvation. Salvation by grace through faith alone is the cardinal doctrine of Christianity. And what Satan tries to do and what he spends his most time doing is trying to confuse people about salvation. There's an age-old perversion of salvation that manifests itself chiefly in three different ways. And this perversion started way back in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sinned, 
Their eyes were open to their nakedness, and so immediately they tried to correct their problem. They produced, Adam and Eve are the ones who produced the central perversion of salvation that we still find in the world today. In Genesis 3, verse 7, it says, And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And that's how salvation is perverted in all ages among all people. And the perversion is this. I can make myself acceptable with God. I'm going to show you now as we close the message tonight. Three variations of Satan's greatest perversion when it comes to salvation. The first one is exertional regeneration. You'll have to pardon me about this because I made up the word exertional. You won't find that in the dictionary. Uh, When Paul needed to explain some theological concepts, that's exactly what he did. He made up some new words that we find in the New Testament to describe what he was trying to teach. So I made up the word exertional. And I'm calling this exertional regeneration because this is regeneration derived from man's work. And that's the historical favorite way... And really, it's the, it's the underlying cause of all other ways of salvation, except salvation purely by God's grace. And that is that salvation comes by man's work. The chief proponent in the world today of exertional regeneration is the Roman Catholic Church. In their catechism, they teach and they say this, that justification, if you say that justification by faith alone without works is how a person is saved... They say that you are to be cursed. Now, essentially, that's what Martin Luther uh, had his big argument with the Catholic Church in the 16th century and why they had the Protestant Reformation. It was over justification by faith. The Roman Catholic Church says you are not justified by faith. You're justified by faith plus your works. And so what the Roman Catholic Church has done, they instituted all their keeping of sacraments and different things that they put in place. And one of the things that they did which is the, the, the most serious error that really shows you that they believe in this, what I'm calling exertional regeneration, is the translation of the word repentance in the Catholic Bible. I'm going to give you some examples from the Catholic Douay Reims Bible. Matthew 4.17 says this from the Reims New Testament. This is the Roman Catholic version. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Do penance. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Not repentance, do penance. Luke 13, verse 3. No, I say to you, but unless ye shall do penance, you shall all likewise perish. Acts 2, 38. But Peter said unto them, do penance. Not repent, do penance. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Acts 8, 22. Do penance. Therefore, for this thy wickedness, and pray to God that perhaps this thought of thy heart may be forgiven thee. Acts 17.30. Remember, this is the great statement that Paul made as he was preaching on Mars Hill. And God indeed, having winked at the times of this ignorance, now declareth unto men that all should everywhere do penance. Not repentance, do penance. You don't need any other proof that the Roman Catholic Church believes wholly in salvation by man's work. That is the devil's doctrine, and it's a perversion of salvation. The second perversion is baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is also practiced by the Roman Catholic Church. It's just one of their sacraments that they 
that they add uh, and one of the ingredients that they have for salvation. But baptismal regeneration simply means that baptism is necessary for salvation and that it is in the waters of baptism that our sins are actually washed away. The Roman Catholic Church has a little bit different idea than the Protestant churches have on this, but they believe that baptism washes away a person's original sin, and that's, of course, why they baptize babies. The Lutheran Church believes in baptism regeneration. Many of the Protestant denominations do. And these denominations uh, practiced infant baptism. The Protestants have a little different idea than the, than the Roman Catholic Church does. But then there are also others who do believe in adult immersion for baptism, and they also believe in baptismal regeneration. The churches of Christ, for instance, uh, they believe that a person goes down into the water, and in the water he actually contacts the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood, or that water, washes away his sins when he goes down into the water. Well, baptismal regeneration is just another way that people think you do some physical act in order to be saved. And that's the devil's perversion of salvation. And if you study this, you may learn that um, baptism has, has been a huge battleground throughout all the centuries. And there have been more Baptists that have been put to death over this one issue because Baptists believe in a totally different idea about baptism. And there have been more Baptists put to death on this one issue than all the other doctrines combined. Now, here's one thing that Baptists have always steadfastly maintained. Salvation is by God's grace through faith alone without any works, without any religious right. Now, most of us, we would, we would immediately recognize why this is wrong. I mean, we, we would all agree. Exertional salvation, salvation by works. We agree with that. That's totally wrong. That's not right. Baptismal regeneration. That can't be right. We, we don't believe in that. And we stand out against that. And we have fought strenuously down through the, down through the uh, uh, centuries in order to defend our position in justification by faith alone. But here, folks, we have come down to the 21st century, and there are many Baptists who are entertaining another false view of regeneration. And this one is as much the spawn of the, de- of the devil as the other two. This is what you call decisional regeneration. And decisional regeneration means that uh, whether a person can be saved or not is as simple as a mechanical decision that he makes for or against Christ. A decisional regeneration, a person who believes in that, uh, would call a person a soul winner because he has this surefire method of which he can win people to Christ. He can get the lost to, to make a confession of faith. If they will agree to several different statements, they encourage a person to say the sinner's prayer, make a decision, and then they pronounce that person saved. Did you know that in all of the scriptures that you will never find a person who is saved by praying the sinner's prayer? You don't find the sinner's prayer in the Bible at all. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong necessarily to use that or for a person to pray like this, uh, but I believe that what's happened here is that a person cannot even pray that prayer until the Holy Spirit has begun a work of regeneration in his heart. And the Holy Spirit regenerates the person in order that they can come to repentance and faith. But the serious error of decisional regeneration is that there is no emphasis on contrition for sin and repentance from sin. And the serious error here is how that people have redefined what repentance is in the Bible. Now, there are many churches that are associated with the group of the sword of the Lord that that have a false idea of this. 
a few years ago, Curtis Hudson, who was the uh, president of Store of the Lord, came out with a statement that, against repentance and faith, saying that, uh, re- that it wasn't necessary to repent of all sin, but that repentance is a change simply from unbelief to belief. Or, to, or essentially that repentance and faith are this, exactly the same thing. So I had a discussion about that with, uh, with uh, Mark Rasmussen at, at West Coast Baptist College about a year or so ago. And uh, thankfully, I come to find out that they repudiate that statement. And uh, he stood strongly against, against that. Uh, but one thing that the sword of the Lord has not done is they have not, uh, they have not retracted this statement that Curtis Hudson made. To me, that's a very serious error. And so what they do is they redefine repentance that simply mean a change from unbelief to belief. But that's not what biblical repentance is. Biblical repentance is confession and turning from sin. It's turning around. And so what they don't believe is that regeneration is a sovereign act of God whereby he awakens the sinner from spiritual death in order that that person may believe the gospel. And so they think that what he actually does is he hears the gospel, then he decides as a matter of his intellect or of his reason to accept Christ. But this decision is purely his own and there is no divine intervention. And so what they believe then is that when Christ made the atonement, that he actually put man into a salvable state But the death of Christ on the cross and the atonement did not actually procure salvation for anyone. It wasn't a guarantee that any single person would be saved. What actually defines or decides whether a person will be saved is their act of repentance and faith, however they define that to be, and that's the determining factor of salvation. So what that does, it actually makes the work of, or or makes the the faith of a person the work of man rather than being God-given faith. And so the determining factor here is not actually what Christ has done because Christ has done the same for all people in general, they say. And so what makes the difference is what you do, whether you have repentance and faith, and that comes without Holy Spirit intervention to cause a person to believe. Now, I would maintain that the Scriptures absolutely do not teach that, that a person cannot come to Christ unless the Holy Spirit has already started to work in that person's heart to bring him to contrition and repentance and faith so that he trusts Christ. Charles Hodge, who is a 19th century theologian, wrote this in his Systematic Theology. No more soul-destroying doctrine could well be devised than the doctrine that sinners can regenerate themselves and repent and believe just when they please. As it is a truth both of Scripture and of experience that the unrenewed man can do nothing of himself to secure his salvation, it is essential that he should be brought to a practical conviction of that truth. When thus convicted and not before, he seeks help from the only source from which it can be obtained. Another writer said, To believe in the power of man in the work of regeneration is the great heresy of Rome. And from that error has come the ruin of the church. Conversion proceeds from the grace of God alone. And the system, which ascribes it partly to man and partly to God, is worse than Pelagianism. I don't have time to explain Pelagianism to you tonight, but just understand this. It's a bad idea, a totally bad idea. And yet, this is exactly what Baptists are preaching today. God does his part, and you do your part. I like what that old country boy said when he was being ordained to the ministry. Maybe you remember I told you about this before. He was asked during the, by the ordination council when he was being ordained how that he was saved. 
And he said, I did my part and God did his part. Well, the ordination council was shocked by that. I mean, they were, they were knowledgeable Baptists and so they weren't going to stand for an answer like that. And so they asked him to explain that answer. And he said, well, I'd done my part. I was running away from God as fast as my legs could take me. And God did his part. He done took out after me and done run me down. And you know he got that exactly right. Your only part of salvation is that you don't want salvation. It's not until God takes out after you and runs you down that you want to be saved. You're not going to decide anything for God until God first works in your heart. God is the one who gives you the power and the ability to believe. So decisional regeneration is not historic Baptist doctrine. And more importantly than that, it's not Bible doctrine. Now, it might be a modern Baptist doctrine, but it's not the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So this is what Satan is busily doing today. He's working to destroy Baptist churches. And you'll find that there are hundreds and even thousands of people that are brought in by that method of decisional regeneration. But many of those churches that if you ask them, is there any evidence in your converts that they have really been born again, they'll tell you most of them do not show any evidence that there has been a change in their heart. And that's because they're depending upon their decision rather than the work of the Holy Spirit to save them. So what better tool do you have for the devil to use? I mean, that's a great one. He, he makes people think, well, I'm perfectly all right. I said the prayer. I said that prayer. And I came down here to the front to what some people call an altar. And I bowed down before there. And so I prayed the prayer. And so I got saved. Well, God doesn't save anybody unless there has been a regenerating work in that person's heart. And that's what causes them to receive Christ. I want to read to you what Jack Hiles wrote in his book, How to Boost Your Church Attendance. Many of us in our preaching will make such statements as, Now in conclusion, finally may I say, my last point is, and he's stepping all over me because I say these things all the time. My last point is, these statements are sometimes dangerous, he says. The sinner knows five minutes before you finish. Hence, he digs in and prepares himself for the invitation so that he does not respond. However, if your closing is abrupt and a lost person does not suspect that you're about to be finished, you have crept up on him and he'll not have time to prepare himself for the invitation. Many people may be reached using this method. In other words, salvation is a matter of getting a decision out of a person before he even realizes what's happening to him. He doesn't even understand what happens. That's what you call decisional regeneration, or if you want to put this beside it, mechanical regeneration. That's not the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've told you so many times before, I'm not afraid of a way that I get an invitation. I'm not afraid of whether I'm going to end the sermon too soon or end the sermon too late, because it's not me that saves anybody. I don't have to creep up on anybody to get saved. For somebody to get saved, the Holy Spirit has to come and speak to that person's heart. And he can convict him right here in this service, five minutes after the service is over, on the way home, or when he gets in bed, or when he gets up in the morning. It's the Holy Spirit's work to do the convicting, not mine. So I'm going to forever maintain this, that a person will not come to Christ until the Holy Spirit has worked specially in his heart and regenerated that person in order that they might believe. Salvation is not part man and part God. Salvation is all of God. Well, I could go on. We could talk about 
many different perversions of salvation, but I think that these are the chief ones, and these are the ones we have to watch out for. We need to understand what Satan is doing today. He is perverting the gospel of Christ, and he keeps people in darkness. Remember, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 4, in whom the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Satan is busy. That's what he's up to. His method is trickery. That's the wiles of the devil that the Bible's talking about. And friends, we had better get to know what the devil is up to. We better know what he's doing so that we can fend off the attack when it comes. This is warfare. We're engaged in warfare. And it's not going to end until either Jesus comes again or we die and we go home to be with him. We will continually be in Christian warfare. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time we spend together tonight as we explain your word, as we talk about the devil and what he's trying to do to people today. I ask you, Lord, that you might help us to fight off the wiles of the devil. May your Holy Spirit fill us and may we have help that we need to overcome the devil and all the tricks that he tries to pull on us. Bless your people tonight, Lord. Draw us close to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please